Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, it's Laura. All right, I have a good news, bad news situation, and I'm gonna give you the bad news first. The bad news is if you've been following along, you know that I was in Austin last week for South by Southwest moderating a panel on addiction with Wes Hurt, Jan Rader, and Jason Isbell, one of my musical heroes. And it was amazing, by the way. It was a very big pinch me moment for me having not been to South by Southwest since I was a drinking person. I figured it out, it was 10 years ago. It was the last time I was there. And then this time sharing a stage with these people, it was great. It was beyond great. I am just now, as is typical for me, really metabolizing it. I was having a little bit of an out-of-body experience (laughs) the whole time. And I love Austin. I always love that city. I joke that if I was going to, it's not really a joke though, if I was going to live in any landlocked city, it would be Austin. And it's true. I love the vibe there, the people there, the food there, the music, all of it. It it was great. And I got to meet and see a lot of TLC members, my The Luckiest Club folks. Uh, It was just, it was special. We had hoped and promised to air the panel discussion this week on the show. And it's not going to happen this week, because, as you could probably tell from the title, because we just haven't got the audio yet. As soon as we get it, you're going to hear it. Uh, We hoped to have it in our hands in time, but that didn't happen. And so I apologize for the folks who are excited for that. All right, that's the bad news. The good news is I think you're gonna be really excited to hear from the guests this week. Johan Hari, he's been on my radar for quite some time. The first time I heard his quote, it's delivered in a TED talk of his about It's titled, Everything We Know About Addiction is Wrong, if you want to go watch it. The quote is, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. He articulated something that we didn't know we had been searching for in that. And while a statement isn't totally accurate, we all know addiction is more complicated than one thing, it still illuminates something so fundamental about the misunderstanding our society's had about addiction really forever. I, uh, soon as I saw his latest book come out, I knew I wanted to take the opportunity to talk to him. It's a subject very close to my heart. Uh, He is also the author, by the way, of Chasing the Scream, which is a seminal book on addiction. Lost Connections is his exploration of depression. And the book he just came out with is called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. 
Yes, it's something we talk about a lot here. Damn it, I hate when I don't turn off my email. There's a bing for you. Uh, it's a surprising, the book is a surprising look at how our struggle with attention isn't just about tech and how we can regain what we know we've lost. I really, really like the book. I highly recommend it. As someone who's even, you know, I thought I kind of knew what there was to know about this, and I learned a lot of new things from reading it and talking to him. So I was very excited to have him on, tell me something true. And even though the internet was having a rough day the day we talked, the sound is not exactly where we like it. Uh, I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. Just bear with the sound in moments. Uh, we did our very best to produce it and edit it in a way that made it sound as good as possible, but sometimes there's not a lot we can do to make it what we wish it was. Uh, and as a bit of a tease to what's coming your way, right at the end, he delivers another pearl of observation that I think is one of the most reassuring things someone has said on the show. So tell me what you think. All right, enjoy. Well, I'm so excited to be talking to you on a personal note. I've quoted your book quite a lot in my own work around sobriety. Mm -hmm. The the company that I started in uh, during the pandemic, which is a global sobriety support community, your quote is on our homepage. Oh, I'm really touched by that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a missing link for a lot of people when they hear the opposite of sobriety is not the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, but connection. You know, it's so funny that when people say that line back to me, the opposite of addiction is connection, because I remember the exact moment that line <laughs> occurred to me. I mean, we'd had a lot of addiction in my family, which is why I wrote my book about that subject, mm -hmm. Chasing the Screen. And I, and I was trying to find out, you know, what actually works in reducing addiction and what causes addiction. And I was going to all these different places all over the world. And I went to the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is an area... Uh, with a lot of very chaotic street addiction and people who were really, really suffering. And it was in the downtown east side of Vancouver that I think the most important breakthrough in the history of addiction was made by a man named Bruce Alexander. He did an experiment called Rat Park. We can talk about yeah. it if you like. But yeah. But I, I remember I, I, I met Bruce and we talked about that experiment and then I went and sat in this place called Pigeon Park, which is a kind of shitty patch of land basically and um there's lots of people there with you know very 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 painful chaotic street addictions mm -hmm. a lot of public shooting up and things and i was sitting in pigeon park and i sat there for about an hour and i was kind of chatting to people but i was also just reflecting and i, and I saw this guy opposite me he looked really unwell and i, I felt this really strong urge to go up to him and give him a hug and i suddenly thought oh the opposite of addiction is connection. <laughs> so it's always very funny to me that that moment, which must be, I don't know, nine years ago now, now since then, since obviously since I wrote the book and I gave a TED talk about it, like that slogan has been put all over the New York subway. It's, yes. you know, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's, it, people have put it on t-shirts in Colombia. I get all these messages from people all over the world. Whenever I hear it be put back to me, I always picture that moment in Pigeon Park and that guy, I didn't give him a hug and I really regret that I didn't. Yeah, it always makes me picture that moment in my mind. 
I know. Isn't it funny? Yeah. And you never really know what's going to, what's going to stick to people, but that, that is such a profound thought. I'm so grateful. Bruce Alexander, you know, who did the Rat Park experiment, which I can explain if you, if you want, if people don't know it, but is one of the most good and wise people I've ever met. And, you know, all I was doing is finding a catchy way to express what Bruce discovered and also what Bruce embodies Yeah. in his, in his work. I'll just quickly say what Rat Park is because some people listening will be thinking, what the hell are they sure. talking about? Um, uh, if you had asked me when I started doing the research for my book about this, Chasing the Scream, years ago, if you'd asked me, you know, what causes addiction, let's say heroin addiction, because that was something close to me, I think I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. And I would have said, well, the clue's in the name, dummy. <laughs> Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told this story for 100 years. It's become totally part of our common sense, certainly part of mine. We think if we took the next you know, 20 people to walk past your apartment in Boston where you are now and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month like a villain in a Saw movie. At the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There's there's chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically crave and when you stop giving it to them, they'd have this tremendous physical hunger for the chemical hooks. In fact, that's why in English we call it being hooked. And it turns out that story isn't totally wrong, that chemical hooks are real. Um, but they're actually a very small part of what's happening with addiction. And we know this for lots of reasons, but it really began to be discovered because of something that Bruce did, Professor Alexander did. So he explained to me that this, this story we have, that addiction comes primarily or entirely from the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they're feeling a bit sadistic. Don't actually try them. Um, you take a rat. You put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. Uh, one is just water. The other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will always, always prefer, almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself by overdosing quite quickly. So there you go. That's our story. The rat tries the drug, needs more and more of it, dies. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander was working on the downtown east side of Vancouver with people with really bad addiction problems. And he looked at these experiments from which such big conclusions had been drawn. And he said, well, hang on, hang on a minute. They put the rat alone in an empty cage where it has got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. All it's got is the drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically paradise for rats. They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of colored balls. They can have loads of sex. Anything a rat wants in life, it's there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water, and the drug water. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water. They hardly ever use it. None of them use it compulsively. None of them overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have their needs met, when they don't have the things that make life worth living for them, to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have their needs met and they do have the things that make life worth living. Now, obviously, there's loads of human examples that I go into in the book that played out in my own family. But that's why I, I, Bruce is the person who did all that work. All I did was describe it and say, 
oh, the opposite of addiction is connection. And then I went to the places that actually rebuilt their drug policies around this insight, like Portugal, where they decriminalized all drugs and took all the money they used to spend on fucking up people's lives, shaming them, punishing them, and spent all that money instead helping them. And addiction massively fell, overdose deaths massively fell, uh, HIV transmission massively fell, and almost nobody in Portugal wants to go back. So you can see, you know, how, how that principle can lead to profound change. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy. And we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. And this is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. As I was reading your book, something occurred to me, and I was just I'm curious if this is true. I kept thinking of this beautiful quote by Steve Almond about the author Cheryl Strayed. He wrote the foreword for her book, Tiny Beautiful Things, and he said she, that Cheryl Strayed understands that attention is the first and final act of love. And I've mm. that quote to me, it just hit, hit me so hard. I think about it a lot in my daily life and how I'm directing my attention it seems like in some way all your all your work has been around attention if you think of attention as the currency of love and connection. Mm. You know, it seems like you've studied things that disrupt our ability to receive and give attention, whether it's addiction, depression, you know, different mental states and and now stolen focus. Does that feel true? I wrote Stolen Focus for a very kind of personal reason, which is that every year that passed, I could feel that my own attention was getting worse. Things that require deep focus, like reading a book, having deep conversations, watching long movies, things that are so deep to my sense of self, were getting more and more like running up and down escalator. Do you know what I mean? Like I could mm -hmm. still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I, I noticed this seemed to be happening to pretty much everyone around me. You know, the average American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. Um, there was one small study backed by a wider body of evidence that found that 
Uh, a typical, the typical American college student only focuses on any one task for 65 seconds. For every yeah. one child who is identified with serious attention problems, when I was, when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. And I wanted to understand, okay, well, what's happening to us? And with all of my books, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an expert. Um, I was trained in the social sciences at Cambridge University, but I'm a journalist. So my job is I, I, look, I get look at this mystery. Each of my books, I start with a mystery, what's going on with depression, what's, what, what causes addiction? Um, how, why are so many more people depressed? Why are we struggling to focus and pay attention? And then I just go and I interview the leading experts in the world. So, and what I learned from them is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have significantly increased in recent years. So if you're listening to this and you're struggling to focus and pay attention, it's not your fault. It's not that you're weak or lacking in willpower. Something big is happening to all of us. But once you understand those 12 factors, you can begin to defend yourself and your children, and we can begin to take on the forces that are doing this to us. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was most struck by is hearing, because I I'm, I looked it up, we're exactly two years apart. So we've grown up in the same era of technology mm-hmm. uh, and living both without the internet and with it. And I've been in a constant battle with tech and my phone and social media and on all of the things you described. And it's always been just like drinking was for me. I just need to try harder. Clearly Mm. I'm, if I, you know, it's a willpower issue. It's a rules issue. It's a, that type of thing. And to hear, oh, there's these large systemic forces that are pressing down on us was, was such a relief. I loved the personal narrative of how, of your exploration of your own attention and how you, uh, started the book, which was this trip to Provincetown in close by me. Yeah, just over the water. (laughs) Just over the water, over the Bourne Bridge. And you said, you were like, can you just talk about what led up to that trip and and then plop us right in Provincetown with what you planned to do and why? I've got a godson who I call Adam in the book. And when he was nine years old, so he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, he, this isn't an exaggeration, he spent almost literally every waking hour alternating between his iPad and his iPhone, between, you know, in this kind of blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn. And one day we were sitting on my sofa and I'd been trying to talk to him all day and nothing was getting any traction. And to be honest with you, Laura, I wasn't that much better. I was looking at my own devices. And I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before. And I was like, hey, let's go to Graceland. And I said, actually, let's go all over the South. We need to break this numbing routine. But you've got to promise me one thing. You've got to leave your phone in the hotel during the day when we go out. Otherwise, it will drive me crazy. And And he thought about it and he said, yeah, I'll do that. And two weeks later, we took off from Heathrow to, to New Orleans. And then we travel around the South. And two weeks after that, we got to Memphis. And we got to the, when you, and when you get to the gates of Graceland, this is even before COVID, there's no one to show you around. What happens is they hand you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right, tells you about the room you're in. And in every room you go into, 
it, it shows you a picture of that room on the iPad. So what happens is people walk around Graceland staring at their iPads, not really looking up. And I'm kind of wandering around. I only look up in order to take selfies and then look back at the iPad. And I was kind of wandering around. I'm getting more and more irritated by this. And we we got to the jungle room, which is Elvis's, was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. It's got loads of fake plants. <laughs> and there was a Canadian couple next to us. And the man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed out loud. I thought he was kidding. And I turned and watched him and his wife, and they're just swiping back and forth. And I said, wow, this is amazing. And I leaned over and I said, but, but sir, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. Um, it's called turning your head because we're actually in the jungle room. You, you, don't, you don't have to look at it on your iPad. We're, look, we're, we're literally there. And they looked at me like I was insane, possibly correctly, and backed out of the room. And I, I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at his phone because from the moment we landed, he, he could not stop. And I went up to him. He was looking at Snapchat. And I, and I did that thing that's never a good idea with a teenager. I tried to grab the phone off him. And, and I said, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up to your own life. You're not present at the events of your own existence. And he stormed off, again, understandably. And I, I found him that night in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying down the street. And he was sitting by the swimming pool, again, flicking through Snapchat. And I, and I went up to him and I apologized for getting so angry. And I said, I said that I was sorry. And, and he said, I know something's really wrong here and I don't know what it is. Mm. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to think about this. So I booked a, a place in Provincetown and I went there for three months and I left my smartphone and my laptop that could get online in in Boston with my friend Shailene. And I took that ferry and for three months I had absolutely no internet and no cell phone. <laughs> yeah. It, when I first heard what you were going to do, I had this like moment of jealousy because I've fantasized about doing that as I'm sure a lot of people have, I've fantasized about some kind of, you know, nomadic break from all of tech. Okay, so so then what happened? <laughs> I mean, loads of things happened in Provincetown and there were lots of ups and downs. But the thing that most amazed me is, you know, I was nearly 40. I thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe my attention is suffering because I'm just getting older, right? Most just what happens to you. Right. My attention was went back to being as good as it had been when I was 18. I could read books for eight hours a day. I was stunned by the the scale and depth with which my attention recovered. I mean, there were certainly ups and downs and moments when I missed things. And I actually later learned, when I learned about the 12 causes of attention problems that I wrote about in Stolen Focus, I actually realized lots of things changed in Provincetown. Yeah, I want to go through those. Yeah. I'll, I'll, let's go through those and like slowly one by one. I'll, I'll prompt you because I there are a few <laughs> that I really want to talk about because I think they're so, they were surprising, not surprising when you hear about them, but they're not tech related. They're not, mm. they're well, not phone you, related. 
Well, it's interesting if you think about, because at first I thought, oh, this is going to be a book about tech. Actually, tech ended up being about a third of the book. Right. Because, and, and it's not even tech that's done this to us. It's specific aspects of the current design of tech. Yeah. We could have all the technology we currently have now and have it not designed to hack and invade our attention. We can talk about that. And that's a very practical goal for us to achieve collectively. But, but it was also, the way I started to think about it is, if you think about this technology as like a virus, you know, this technology is designed to hack and invade our attention at the moment, right? So it comes along like a virus. And at any moment in human history when it came along, that would have had some effect on us. But it came along by coincidence at a moment when it's like our collective immune system was already down. There were already loads of things happening to us that were lowering our ability to focus and pay attention. So that can sound a bit weird in the abstract. So I'll give you a very concrete example, one that is literally playing out for me today. Yep. We sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Only 15% of us wake up feeling refreshed. And so I interviewed many of the leading sleep experts in the world. And I remember I went to interview this guy, extraordinary scientist called Dr. Charles Seisler, who's at Harvard Med School, who, who, who has advised everyone from the Boston Red Sox to the US Secret Service on sleep and the science of sleep. And he said to me, even if nothing else had changed, but that we sleep 20% less than we used to, that alone would be causing a very serious attention crisis. But he just, you know, if you stay awake for 19 hours, your attention is, becomes as bad as if you were legally drunk. But even if you just go nine days with six hours, the same thing happens. A lot, and, and there was this piece of research that Dr. Seisler did that really haunted me. He gets tired people, and they don't have to be that tired, I would certainly be in this category now. Um, and he puts them into PET scans, uh, brain scanning technology. And what he discovered is you can appear to be awake, you can be around, looking around you and talking just as surely as we are now, but whole significant parts of your brain can have gone to sleep. It turns out when we say we're half asleep, that's actually not a metaphor. A lot of us are literally half asleep a lot of the time. And there's many reasons why sleep is so important for attention. One of them I was taught by Professor Roxanne Prashad, who I interviewed at the University of Minneapolis, is a completely brilliant scientist. She said to me, look, we think of sleep as a passive process. You know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep is an active process. Well, the whole time you're awake, you're building up in your brain something called metabolic waste, what she calls brain cell poop. <laughs> and when you go to sleep, a watery fluid washes through your brain, your cerebral spinal fluid channels open up. And that, that brain cell poop is washed down out of your brain, down into your kidneys, where it's eventually taken out of your body. If you don't get eight hours sleep a night, your brain literally doesn't get to do that it fully. It doesn't heal. It doesn't repair. It's, it's why you feel quite kind of hungover and clogged up when you're tired. You are, in fact, hungover and clogged up, right? You, you, this is why people who don't sleep well are more likely to develop dementia later in life because their brains have literally been clogged up for years and years and years. Um, so, yeah, th that's one example of one of, one of the 12 one of the twelve causes that I write about where you can see how we all know if you've had a night where you haven't slept well, that's the next day you're much more likely to mindlessly scroll through TikTok or Facebook right. than on a day when you've slept well and eat like it. crap and exactly and, and do all the things that that contribute to feeling worse right 
So you can see how a lot of these factors interact. You know, we are more stressed. Stress lowers your ability to focus and pay attention. The food we eat is profoundly damaging our ability to focus and pay attention. I'll give you one that, one of the biggest causes, the one that will absolutely be playing out for everyone listening, unless they're very unusual. I went to MIT just up the road from where you are and interviewed Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. But what's happened is we've fallen for a massive delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, older people as well, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And what they discover is always the same. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between tasks. What was that message on WhatsApp just then? What did it say on the TV over there about Ukraine? Wait, what's this Facebook message? Oh, wait, what did Laura just ask me? So we're switching very rapidly between tasks. And it turns out that comes with a really big cost. The technical term for it is the switch cost effect. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do significantly less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll remember less of what you do. You'll be significantly less creative. And this sounds like a small effect. It's a really big effect. I'll give you an example of a very small study. It's backed by a wider body of evidence. Hewlett Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study some a, a group of their workers and he split their workers into two groups and the first group was told just get on with whatever your task is and you're not going to be interrupted and the second group was told get on with your task but you're going to have to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls and at the end of it this scientist tested the iq of both groups and he found that the group that had not been interrupted scored 10 iq points higher than the group that had been interrupted to give you a sense of how big that is if you and me sat down now, Laura, and we smoked a fat spliff together, our IQs would go down by five points in the short term. So in the short term, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than you would sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being constantly interrupted. Now, there's a debate about the longer term effects of cannabis. If you were a chronic stoner, that would yeah, be different. Right. But, and to be clear, you'd be better off neither getting stoned nor being interrupted. But you can see what a big effect this is. This is why <clears throat> Professor Muller said to me, we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of being constantly interrupted. You know, when you're interrupted, think about something really small. I assume your phone is somewhere in the room with you. If you just glanced at your phone now and started listening to me again, it seems like such a small thing. If you're interrupted, a study by Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon found, if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But most of us never get 23 minutes spare. So we're constantly operating at this diminished level of brain power. Does that ring true to you, Laura? Oh my God. Yes. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, and I know that because, um, I mean, if you, you've had to write books and the only, I've learned the only way I can get any amount of writing done is to shut everything down. And, you know, you talk about different ways to do that, but I would never be able to write a book 
I don't know that anyone can, you know, it's, it's only when I've had to focus, I've had to focus on something for a considerable period of time, because otherwise you just learn to, you learn to work like that. I noticed that one of the things that started to scare me was I would, I lost my ability to read, which for me was devastating. I would have this nervous twitch to go check my phone every five minutes when I was reading and it's like, why, <laughs> why is, and, and I guess, you know, I, I guess I'm asking you. Yeah. Well, I think the answer lies partly in, we should listen to what the tech engineers who control the current system say. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook said, we designed Facebook to maximally hack your attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. Now, the most important thing to know about that is that it doesn't have to work that way and we can stop them doing it. And we'll come to that, I'm sure. But just to stay with that thing that you just said about how you felt when you couldn't read, I would say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of focus and attention. And when your ability to pay attention breaks down, your ability to solve your problems breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down, you begin to feel incompetent. And that's because you become incompetent when you can't pay attention, or at least you become less competent. It diminishes your competence. You think about your daughter wanting, as most 13-year-olds do, wanting to simultaneously you know, be on a social media app while watching television. So there's very good research on this. Uh, for example, Professor Larry Rosen has done a lot of work on this. I'll give you an example. They did a study where they get um, a group of college students and they all watch the same lecture. And they're split into three groups, all in the same room. The first group doesn't receive any text messages during the lecture. The second group receives four text messages during the lecture, and the third group receives eight text messages during the lecture. The group that received four text messages, and then they're all given a test on what was in the lecture. The group that got four text messages did much worse than the group that got none, and the group that got eight text messages did 30% worse than the group that got none. And what was interesting is, in one variant of the experiment, they asked them in advance, how much do you think... Uh, receiving eight text messages will harm your attention. And they correctly estimated 30%. So they knew what it was doing, but they felt they couldn't they couldn't stop. And this is why for all of the 12 factors that are harming our attention that I write about in Style and Focus, there's two levels at which we've got to respond. I think of them as defense and offense. There are dozens of things we can do as individuals to defend ourselves and our children. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of I, the that's one of the things I really liked about the approach in the book is because I kept thinking of people that really can't have very little control over their environment. Yeah, and like you said, to 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 put it all on them is very similar to how we put addiction on people. Hundred percent, hundred percent. In my view, it just there were a lot of parallels there. It's like. If we live in a culture that completely normalizes alcohol as a benign substance that is really only beneficial for you in moderation, but the moderation's on you. I interviewed an incredible woman named Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who 
is the Surgeon General of California, the senior medical figure in the state, although she wasn't when I interviewed her. And I stress she, she was talking before COVID, so she, she wasn't, this is not a commentary on COVID, but she said to me one day, imagine you were walking down the street and you were attacked by a bear and you survived. In the weeks and months that followed, something completely involuntary would happen to your attention. You would find it harder to say read a book because a big part of your brain would be scanning the horizon for risk and danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a disorder of attention. That's actually a very rational response to danger. Okay, now imagine that you were attacked by a bear again. At that point, um, you would likely slip, slip, in, slip into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where you couldn't read a book because you're just you so much of your brain is scanning for risk and danger. I remember a wonderful child psychiatrist called Dr. John Giardini in Adelaide in Australia saying to me, you know, deep focus is a really good strategy when you're safe. Read a book, you'll grow and you'll learn. Deep focus is a really dumb strategy when you're in danger. You'd be a fool to sit at the Battle of the Somme and read a novel. You're going to get shot in the head, right? <laughs> and so we actually evolved for very good reasons to not be able to pay deep focus when we feel unsafe and, and in danger. And, you know, think about the last two years. The bear came back. The bear came back two times, right? Anyone, if anyone listening, if you haven't been able to focus during a global pandemic, stop, stop beating yourself up, right? All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.